As a warning, this episode includes descriptions of violent acts. Please be advised. It's October 1945 in Charleston, South Carolina. The American Tobacco Company was one of the biggest employers in town, running a cigar factory in a five-story brick building. Inside, African-American men and women, along with white women, rolled cigars and packed them into boxes. They worked long hours in segregated spaces. Robert Greene II is a history professor at Claflin University. It was actually a combination of black men and black women and white women who were working the bulk of the more difficult jobs in the factory arrayed against white men who were in the most prominent positions of authority at the factory. The white men were machinists and foremen who were considered skilled workers, and so they had the highest wages. The unskilled workers wanted more pay, health insurance, and non-discrimination when it came to hiring and firing. So, on October 22, 1945, 1,000 workers, black and white, went on strike. And keep in mind, a lot of the workers who were on strike, this is their livelihood on the line. They don't have an easy time of it, but they still hold out as much as they can for better wages and a better way of life. Although the black and white workers who went on strike were unified in their demands, the picketers were mostly African-Americans. Strikers and their allies passed out leaflets around Charleston. There was also a national boycott that drew attention to the strike. You have organizations like the other CIO-affiliated unions, the NAACP, other groups that are all making appeals to Americans across the country to boycott this cigar company, to make sure that the company is feeling pressure not just in Charleston, but also across the country. For five months, they strike. Throughout, one of the women picketing, Lucille Simmons, would sing the spiritual, I will overcome one day. Except, she changed the lyrics to, we will overcome, giving the song an air of solidarity. She would sing it to actually signify the end of picketing day to day. She would sing it to basically say, okay, we're done picketing for the day, We'll pick up again with this the next day. So the song begins as a way to tell picketers, hey, we're done, we'll come back tomorrow. And it becomes a clarion call for a much broader movement. The number of picketers dwindled down to a devoted few by the time the strike ended in March of 1946. They got some, but not all, of what they wanted. Instead of a 25-cent raise, they got an 8-cent raise. Following the strike, more Black workers were put into higher-skilled jobs. But the end of the cigar factory strike was just the beginning for the song that ended the day of picketing. Lucille Simmons sang the song, We Will Overcome, during her visits to the Highlander Folk School, an organization in Tennessee devoted to activism. There, some people at the Highlander Folk School added lyrics to We Will Overcome, changing it to We Shall Overcome. Folk singer and activist Pete Seeger picked it up. And in the early 1960s, the song began its journey as the anthem for the civil rights movement.
The thing is, is that a lot of the activists we know from the movement, Rosa Parks, from Martin Luther King Jr.'s, your family, Abe Hamer, Ella Bakers, all of them at some point in their careers went to Tennessee and the Highlander Folk School. And so all of them were exposed to this song either there or they knew folks who knew the song from being there. And so it takes some time for by the early 60s, you really start to see the We Shall Overcome song everywhere across the South. This is a South Carolina Legacy of Courage podcast, a series where historians and experts help us explore some of the most significant events of African-American history that happened in the state. You'll also hear the real stories of people who were there and who made a difference, and why what took place in South Carolina then is still so relevant today. This is a third and final episode, and we'll be learning here about how African-Americans in South Carolina and their allies began peaceful protests in the late 1950s and into the 60s, when the state ignored new federal legislation calling for integration and equality. Yes, Jackie hit that ball. On October 25, 1959, baseball legend Jackie Robinson flew into Greenville, South Carolina, to give a speech at the NAACP state conference. He arrived to find that the people waiting for him were being threatened with arrest if they didn't leave the airport's whites-only waiting room. Ramon Jackson is a history professor at Newberry College. Jackie had already by 1959, gained a reputation for not just desegregating baseball, but also public accommodations wherever he traveled. As far back as 1944, he had kind of chafed at segregation. So Jackie Robinson always seemed to kind of come into these situations where he butted against either legal segregation or this kind of arbitrary, customary segregation despite federal intervention. While Rosa Parks' case three years earlier mandated the end of segregation on buses, airports were still operating under Jim Crow. Angry at what he saw, Robinson spoke about the encounter in his speech that night, and he made sure that he and Reverend James Hall and his wife Elizabeth arrived at the airport early before his flight home departed. So Reverend Hall and his wife took the only available seats near a television set that was provided for passenger use in the terminal lounge. And so they actually sat purposefully in the whites-only section of the Greenville airport. Again, the police arrived. Robinson argued that it was illegal to force them out. His argument that the airport received federal funds would later become the cornerstone of a case that in two years 
would end with a Supreme Court ruling that desegregated airports. But until then, in that Greenville, South Carolina airport waiting room, in 1959, the situation resolved itself. Jackie Robinson needed to board his plane, while Reverend Hall and his wife Elizabeth made it clear to airport officials that they were not done fighting for the rights of Black travelers. For weeks, Reverend Hall delivered a series of sermons highlighting where segregation continued to be rooted in the community. Despite earlier successes in the civil rights movement, Hall, along with activists and members of an interracial ministerial alliance, organized a march for the day marking Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, Emancipation Day, January 1st, 1960. A thousand protesters showed up, and they marched from Springfield Baptist Church through downtown to the Greenville Municipal Airport. Reverend Matthew McCollum preached the word that the end of segregation was near. Jackson recalls what Reverend McCollum said that day. They were not going to be satisfied with, quote, the crumbs of citizenship while others enjoy the whole loaf, unquote. So he's really making it plain uh, and making it clear that the end of Jim Crow is at hand. And if it doesn't come through law, the potency of public protest would definitely bring those walls down. Those public protests did come, and those walls started to crumble in a wave of action driven largely by students. I just think Jackie's presence there spoke to young people in a way that maybe others might not have been able to connect. The treatment of Jackie, I think, was especially important for young folks who were also alienated because of their inability to be part of this affluent society in the late 50s. It only took a month after that march in Greenville for college students to start a series of protests at lunch counters across the South. Department stores like Woolworths, Crest, and McCrory's were where most people did their shopping, especially in smaller towns. William Hine is a retired history professor at South Carolina State University. Virtually every one of them uh, had a lunch counter. And while African-Americans were welcome to come spend their money at the store and check out at the cash register there, they were forbidden to uh, sit at the uh, lunch counter at the McCrory's in Rock Hill or the Crest in Orangeburg or the Woolworths in uh, Charleston and forbidden it, even after they'd made purchases there. The most well-known sit-in took place on February 1st at the Woolworths lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina. Four students sat at the counter where they were denied service and harassed by white patrons. This and other sit-ins were about more than segregation and the idea of separate but equal. As they found out at the lunch counters, it was exclusion. Black people were excluded entirely from restaurants, hotels, in many cases theaters, bowling alleys, golf courses owned by white people or owned by the municipality in the case of parks and golf courses and swimming pools. They were excluded. It wasn't segregation, it was exclusion. Hundreds joined the Greensboro sit-ins that stretched into July, and college students in other cities and towns staged their own. The first one in South Carolina took place two weeks later in Rock Hill. Students in this small town were tired of not being allowed at certain places and felt the urge to join the sit-in movement. On the first day, 150 students showed up. Some took their seats at the McCrory's or Woolworth's lunch counter. Others sat at the counter inside a few local drugstores. McCrory's closed the lunch counter for a couple of weeks. 
And when it reopened, the sit-ins resumed. For months, students protested at lunch counters and picketed outside stores. They held signs reading, Segregation is America's shame. And don't buy discrimination here. And these protests went on and on, and they went on and on because uh, there was no give. There was no relaxation in Jim Crow. And there was no, let's meet at a table and discuss this and see if we can work out a compromise that will be satisfactory to everybody here. That simply did not occur. So the protest continued through 1960 into 1961. And on January 31st, 1961, 10 students, all men, walked from the campus of Friendship College to McCrory's, where they went inside and sat at the counter. Within seconds, they were pulled from their seats, arrested, and sent to jail. Nine of them refused to pay bail, choosing instead to sit in jail. They soon became known as the Friendship Nine. In January of 1961, 11 months after the the first arrests at the McCrory's in uh, Rock Hill, uh, students decided that they would not post bond, uh, they would not pay their fines, but they would go to jail. And so uh, their rallying cry became, jail, no bail. As bail money for protesters was running out at organizations like the NAACP, the jail, no bail strategy relieved the financial pressure. It also shifted the financial responsibility to the cities and states that were implementing Jim Crow. And soon, jail, no bail spread across the civil rights movement. In Rock Hill, South Carolina, the Friendship Nine, who chose jail and not bail, were sentenced to 30 days of hard labor at the York County Prison Farm. Those men gathered once again in a South Carolina courtroom in 2015. That's when they were cleared of the charges they were arrested on 54 years earlier. The judge who threw out the charges, John C. Hayes III, was the nephew of the judge who had originally sentenced the men back in 1961. Taking a pause here to say that if you're interested in following South Carolina's Legacy of Courage, go to sclegacyofcourage.com, where you will find stories and information on this history. There's also a link there to the popular greenbookofsc.com, an online travel guide of more than 400 African-American historic sites. Or you can visit civilrightstrail.com. It's a great way to begin planning your trip. Okay, back to the story. The year was 1968, four years after the landmark Civil Rights Act was passed. Fifty miles south of the state capital, in Columbia, African-American college students filled the city of Orangeburg. This was a college town, with two predominantly black universities, South Carolina State University and Claflin University. Even though a majority of the students were black, and there was a healthy middle class, Integration rolled out slowly in Orangeburg, and it did not reach inside the doors of the all-star triangle bowling lanes. The bowling alley was not far from campus, and it refused any black customers to bowl there. This went against the Civil Rights Act, but owner Harry Floyd said his business was private property, and besides, he had all the customers he could handle and didn't need any new black ones. 
On February 5th, 1968, a small group of students tried to get inside the bowling alley, but Floyd turned them away. Word spread, and the next night, more African-American students showed up. The police were called and threatened the students with fire hoses. A window was broken, and police started beating unarmed students, arresting 15. This enraged the students and heightened the fears of white business owners. The governor called in the National Guard. On the night of February 8th, about 200 students gathered on the campus of South Carolina State University. The unarmed students lit a bonfire at the campus entrance. Firefighters arrived to put out the bonfire, and state troopers with loaded guns showed up to protect the firefighters. Students started throwing rocks and other objects at law enforcement, and then someone said they heard gunshots, and troopers fired into the crowd. And literally, with the students running the other way when they started firing, people shot in the back, the heels of their feet trying to get away. There were literally 27 or 28 people wounded, three young African-Americans killed, one of them a high school student who was part of that protest. And that's one of the tragic stories in South Carolina that very few people know about. Vernon Burton is a history professor at Clemson University. It was a peaceful protest. There's debate about it. Some people said they heard something and then they started firing. But why were they there with loaded guns? Now, when you say a peaceful protest, that may be in the eyes of the beholder. For a lot of white people to see blacks congregated is not a peaceful protest. But I would argue that it was a peaceful protest, and I think objectively you would have to say it was. Following the massacre, students at historically black colleges and universities in the state capital of Columbia protested and made a plea that echoes today. In the aftermath of the massacre, nine officers were charged for shooting at the protesters. They were all acquitted. However, one man who was there did go to prison, civil rights activist Cleveland Sellers. He heard about the protest brewing on the South Carolina State campus. While he was there to see what was happening and trying to calm things down, he was shot in the shoulder. Hours later, he was arrested and charged with inciting a riot. Sellers was convicted and sentenced to a year in prison, the only person sentenced for what happened that night. Well, he was in jail for quite a while, and it was much later before he was pardoned and that taken off of his record. The Orangeburg Massacre was one of the most violent moments in the civil rights movement. Yet, it is not very well known, partly because of the Tet Offensive in Vietnam took place a few days later overshadowing the massacre. The Vietnam War complicated the whole story of the civil rights movement. But the other part, I think, is because these were black students shot by highway patrolmen. Law and order is so important in America, and particularly as seen as justification for so many things, even if unjust. While the Rock Hill sit-ins and the Orangeburg massacre may never occupy the same place in history as other events in the civil rights movement, there's no denying that the brave students in 1960 South Carolina pushed the movement forward. 
because the resistance was fierce, the compromises were few and far between, and if it had not been for the activities of hundreds and hundreds of black students here in South Carolina, the state uh, would not have made the kind of progress it did make, and it would not be the kind of state that we uh, call home today. A year later, in 1969, African-American workers at the Charleston County Hospital and Medical College Hospital wanted better pay and treatment. These requests weren't that different from the ones made nearly a quarter of a century earlier by workers at the cigar factory. Black nurses' aides, along with workers across the hospital, such as orderlies, kitchen workers, and laundry staff, were being paid less than their white counterparts. The nurses' aides were paid $1.30 an hour, a full 30 cents below federal minimum wage. And they endured racist comments from co-workers. Cecil Williams was a photographer for Jet Magazine who covered the strike. Well, this was a time uh, in our nation where we thought that we had passed the point where segregation and Jim Crow raised this ugly head. That had not quite taken place relative to fair wages for all people. So this was another form of discrimination that had not been removed or addressed during Congress and uh, President Johnson's uh, the Civil Rights Acts that were passed in the mid-1960s. And so this is something that needed to be addressed. Mary Moultrie was a nurse's aide who worked with local activist Bill Saunders to start organizing. It started with a few people meeting at a local church. As the meetings continued, more workers started attending. And soon, there were a few hundred. And as they met and talked, they discovered that they were facing similar forms of discrimination throughout the hospital. When they decided to join a union, Mary was elected president. On March 20, 1969, the medical college hospital workers went on strike. They were followed by the Charleston County hospital workers. The uh, demonstrations were very orderly and very peaceful However, uh, full of, of course, excitement as people made signs and placards and carried them while they marched in the street. Often they would chant whatever might be on the uh, signs as they marched through the street. Reverend Ralph David Abernathy of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference came to Charleston to support the workers and march with them. We certainly hope that the governor and the power structure of South Carolina will get the message and decide to sit down and negotiate because nothing can be won in the era of human relations through bayonets and through violence. It can only be won through negotiations, and we are ready to negotiate. But the governor, Robert McNair, did not want to negotiate. For fear that any compromise would spark more strikes across the state, he called in state troopers and the National Guard and put Charleston under a curfew that started at 9 p.m. Although the protests were mostly peaceful, many were arrested, including Mary Moultrie. I never observed a case where marches were beat, as had been done in some marches and demonstrations. There were some times when, of course, there was an element of, of course, uh, danger and also tension, in April, Coretta Scott King arrived to march with the workers. A year after her husband, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis. As a working photographer, 
Williams found a way to ride with black members of the state police as they went to the airport to pick her up. They wanted to make sure that Mrs. King's presence in South Carolina, that she was being protected at all costs because her husband, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, had been killed earlier by an assassin's bullet in Memphis, Tennessee. And they wanted to make sure that while Mrs. King was on South Carolina turf, that she was safe while in the state. She spoke to the crowd at the Emanuel AME Church in downtown Charleston, saying she was there in solidarity to Black working women who were, quote, working full-time jobs at part-time pay. King marched with the workers, linking arms, and wearing the blue and white paper hats worn by the striking workers. Two months later, the strike ended with the hospital's pledge to rehire the striking workers. They said they would give them a raise and offer a process for Black workers to file grievances, but the union was never recognized. While striking workers didn't get everything they wanted, they did make pay and working conditions more equitable for African-American workers, and they inspired other strikes that brought changes for more Black workers in the state. Courageous South Carolina students who stood up and sat in for equality also made significant progress. Bobby Donaldson is director of the Center for Civil Rights History at the University of South Carolina. So you think about these are young men and women who were the contemporaries of a young John Lewis and others who went against tradition, who went against their parents' clear directives. And why do they do so? Because they were daring to exercise their hopes and dreams about the future. Our country's history is full of stories of people from all races who are young and old, expressing that hope for a better future. We've heard about many events from South Carolina in this series, featuring brave men and women who marched and protested and spoke out against the inequalities they faced. Jim Clyburn, the U.S. Congressman who has represented South Carolina since 1993, reminds us they all had a choice. And I think it's important for people to understand that we all fit. We all get our time in the barrel, so to speak. We all get handed the baton. And you got to decide whether or not you're going to run with it or toss it away. After listening to the podcast, learn more about the sites of the South Carolina Legacy of Courage. For example, see the markers where students held their sit-in at McCrory's in Rock Hill, where protesters sang, We Will Overcome, at the Charleston Cigar Factory, and where the hospital workers' strike began at present-day Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, in Orangeburg, you can visit the Cecil Williams South Carolina Museum on Civil Rights or the monument on the campus of South Carolina State University that memorializes students killed in the 1968 massacre. Go to sclegacyofcourage.com, greenbookofsc.com, or civilrightstrail.com to begin planning your trip. In this episode, we heard from Robert Greene II, Ramon Jackson, William Hine, 
Vernon Burton, Cecil Williams, Bobby Donaldson, and Congressman Jim Clyburn. I'm Marlene Gordon. The South Carolina Legacy of Courage podcast is sponsored by Discover South Carolina. The series was produced by Ingredient Creative with Tanner Latham as executive producer and Catherine Welch as the writer. Elliot Majerzik edited and mixed the sound. And research was provided by Archival Ninjas.